Our sermon today is taken from Exodus 15, verse 22 to 17, verse 7. This is the word of God. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases of you on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to, came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat, of meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know what it was for the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew has gone, had gone up, there, were, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. 
and the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, and as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in a field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. none. And, they, and the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like a coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which, with which I fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years, till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to a border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Raphidim, but there was no water for people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, talking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. 
And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This says the Lord. Thank you, Emily. That was a mouthful and really long. Sorry. Let's pray. Father in heaven, who are we, O Lord, that you speak to us? You've given us your word and you reveal your character to mortals like us. Father, I pray that this morning you give us ears to hear and soft hearts that, that your word may be planted in our hearts and that it may bear fruit, God. Pray, Father, that you can send your Holy Spirit to guide and to teach us this morning so that we can hear what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this week we are continuing again our series on the life of Moses, and we're entering into a new phase of the journey of the people of Israel. If we recall what just happened in Exodus, God had decisively and finally defeated Egypt, and right before our passage, we took a narrative break and saw a song that the Israelites sung to recap what God had just done for them. If we think of it like a TV series, right? It's like in episode one, there's like a season recap of everything that happened in the season before, and then the season starts. So now we're completely done with Egypt, the villain and antagonist of last season. God's people are completely free. That situation is clearly resolved. They're no longer slaves or oppressed, but they're not yet in the promised land. They're free, but they're in the desert, a hostile place with all kinds of dangers, and, and resources there are scarce. So the passage that we're thinking about today is basically episode one of the next season of the story of Israel, the story of their adventures in the wilderness. Now, as Christians, we can see our story in the journey of Israel. We are also God's people who he has freed from the slavery of sin. We're not yet in the new creation, the heavenly home that God had promised and prepared for us. We are still in the wilderness, a hostile environment with dangers that can still destroy us. So Israel's journey in the wilderness is the journey of the church, a people redeemed by grace, but are living in a world that's by nature inhospitable to us. We can also appreciate here the contrast of the Song of Moses that we read last week to the passage that we read today. So the people of Israel just had this intense worship service, right? But now they're brought back down to reality of the fact that they're in the wilderness. And this happens to us too, right? Maybe if you remember the first time we accepted Christ, or if we go on a spiritual retreat, right, where we get our worship on, or a particular Sunday where you don't have not one, but two hands up, and you're basking in the Lord, and you're just into the worship. But now it's Monday, and you go back to normal life and reality hits you. And we become super aware that we're still in a sinful world filled with sinful people. So how do we respond to this? How does God's redeemed people respond when we get this reality check and we realize that we're not in heaven yet? So from the first episode of Israel's adventure in the wilderness, we can learn at least three things. One, what the wilderness does. Two, how God provides, and three, who God provides. 
And if you've been going to CCC for a while, you might notice that we like to go through the passage verse by verse. But if we try to do that today, we'll be here all day, and you'll be hearing me all day. And I'm sure you all have better things to do than that, right? So, point one, what the wilderness does to us. So what we see in our passage today are three consecutive narratives of Israel complaining to God because they're in the wilderness. And their complaining gets progressively worse, and it reveals to us what could happen in our hearts as well as we go on living in this life filled with wilderness temptation. And we see that there are four stages of Israel's complaining in our passage. First, passive-aggressive grumbling. Two, fatalistic nostalgia. Three, valuing productivity over faithfulness. And then four, outright hostility. So first, passive-aggressive grumbling. So in the first narrative, uh, chapter 15, verse 20 to 27, we can see that the context of Israel, I mean of the wilderness, caused Israel to be anxious. And this anxiety leads to grumbling. Now, this is a completely rational and normal response if we think about Israel's current situation, right? They're in the desert. And as you can probably imagine, in the desert, water is hard to come by. And then, when they finally found water, it was bitter, and you can't drink it. So they couldn't see a way for their needs to be met, and they were understandably worried. The same way, when life does not go our way, and God throws a wrench in our plans, and it's more challenging than we expected, it's normal to feel anxiety. Right? Like, if you don't get that job that you're applying for, or maybe suddenly you're having another kid that you're not ready for, and it's normal for you to sit there and think, well, you know, how's it going to work out? You know, this, is, this is scary. Now, it is anxiety that causes Israel to act the way that they do, but anxiety itself is not a sin. It's simply a reaction that tells us that something is wrong, right? It's like an itch. If you have an itch, what you should do is you should think about why you might have the itch and then buy and apply the appropriate cream instead of trying to resolve it by scratching it and then you might end up bleeding or getting a worse injury, right? So what does... Israel's anxiety reveal about their hearts. What is this itch that they have, right? We need to remember, first of all, that Israel was not in the wilderness trying to find their own way in the promised land. They weren't, like, they weren't lost there. They were led by God's presence that's, that appears in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So it wasn't like they ended up in this marah place by accident. God led them there. So it makes sense that the word that the author intentionally chooses here is that Israel grumbled. Right? Like, it's like if we're out with some friends to a place to eat, but then one person doesn't like the restaurant, you know, they might take a bite and chicken's dry. Who picked this place? You know, this place is hot. Who likes this place? Right? It's this passive-aggressive attitude towards God. And what this kind of reaction reveals is that deep in their hearts, there is at least doubt that God is trustworthy. And as we continue in this passage, right, we see how ugly this unbelief gets. And if we keep on reading until the end of Deuteronomy, that's what we'll find. Just a downward spiral. 
of how this lack of trust in God became like a wound in Israel that gets more and more infected. Then, secondly, in chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, we see that Israel became really nostalgic about slavery and very fatalistic about their circumstances. They ended up fantasizing about the good old days in Egypt. Oh, how in Egypt, how we used to lay by pots of meat and had all the bread that we wanted. They forgot that in Egypt, they were under an oppressive tyrant doing forced labor, and that at one point, the tyrant drowned their babies in the Nile. It's like after getting out of a toxic relationship, for example, right? and then you're single for a while, and you get lonely, and, you, and to cope, you remind yourself, oh yeah, she was hot though. We really got along though. Right? And then, if this keeps on going, you get fatalistic and you're like, oh man, I'll never be as happy as that ever again. Maybe that's just me. But it also happens, right? It also happens if, let's say, you lose a job and now suddenly you're not as financially secure. Maybe this job was killing you, right, physically and mentally, but then now you suddenly have less money and you're like, oh. My career is over, I'm going to be poor, and suddenly the world's ending. So do you see how being in this wilderness context where we cannot see or imagine how our needs are going to be met leads us to these unhelpfully nostalgic and fatalistic patterns of thought, and ultimately they're only going to make our experience in the wilderness worse, right? And further, in chapter 16, we see that their anxiety leads them to value productivity or faithfulness. So when God provided for Israel, he told them how they were to enjoy his provisions. Gather enough for one day, don't gather on the seventh. Right. But as we've read, some of the Israelites still disobeyed God. Some of them gathered more than they needed. Some of them gathered on the seventh day. And Moses was like, how long will you keep on not believing in the Lord? He got frustrated. And this attitude comes down again to a lack of trust that God will faithfully provide and pull through on his promises. They did not see God as covenantly loving them, and his love is eternal and unchanging. So they end up trying to milk or squeeze every benefit they can extract from him. While God is acting usefully or productively for them, they want to make the most of it, even at risk of disobedience. And we can see our youth this way, right? When God gives us youth and health, we know that it's not going to last forever, so we think that we need to make the most of it. Be as productive as we can. Meaning, maybe we should make the most money as possible. Or we need to enjoy ourselves as much as possible. Right? Get it out of our system. Even if it means being disobedient to Him. Even if it means neglecting our relationship. We can think, we can repent later, right? He's going to forgive us. I'm going to spend all this time in heaven. I need to secure my future now. I need to enjoy life now. Or maybe that because right now, because we're still young and attractive, we might think that this is the best chance at finding the most eligible spouse that gives us the best shot at happiness and security. Even if they're not walking with the Lord. Even if, by trying to find him or her, you fall into disobedience and sin. Like Israel in the wilderness, it makes sense 
to believe that our time and resources are limited. Again, it is the wilderness. Resources are, in fact, scarce. The anxiety that the wilderness causes leads us to forget that it was actually God who all along has graciously and generously provided things for Israel anew every day. Right? And so, if we think this way, we see God's provisions as merely as a resource that we need to take advantage of and hoard while it's working. But can't we see how abusive and disrespectful it is to see God this way? As if the Lord of the universe, the one who created heaven and earth, the one who sets the stars in the sky and knows them by name, exists to serve me. Right? So finally, in verse 17, chapter 17, verse 1 to 7, in the third narrative of complaint, we see that this lack of trust in the Lord led Israel to be hostile, demanding, and violent. Right here, the language is no longer that Israel grumbled, but they quarreled. It's no longer passive-aggressive, it's active-aggressive. It's hostile. They didn't ask the Lord, but they demanded from Him. Because God did not give them the kind of life they expected, after being saved, they even questioned their commitment to Him. Is the Lord really among us? After all that God had done for them, after all He has provided for Israel, their distrust in the Lord festered, and it led them to be totally deceived by their circumstances. Right? Think about what these people, what Israel has witnessed. They saw the sea part. Every day, they were eating miraculous heaven bread. See, the readers are supposed to see that no, Israel's attitude was completely ridiculous. But this can happen to us too. Especially when we let our doubts in the Lord fester. And when we're so fixated on what we need and, or what we want, and we make ultimatums to God, maybe we have that thing that we so deeply desire. And you say to God, Lord, if you don't give me whatever, you don't love me. You're not good. And it's like I was in a relationship once. And then she was like, if you go and watch football with your friends, you don't love me. Like, really? It's that easy? to convince you otherwise? So friends, I hope that part of you is annoyed with Israel because God was, right? In fact, if we could keep on reading through Deuteronomy, God was thoroughly annoyed because this will keep on happening. And if it wasn't for Moses pleading and advocating for them, God would have destroyed them. Sound familiar? So, so we better check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Has the wilderness context messed with our heads? Have we been deceived by the sinful world and the needs that it makes us have? And friends, the problem is not the needs. Like, these are real needs. Having needs is not the issue. The issue is our attitude about them. Does it make us act like Israel? Do our needs lead us to take for granted the grace that God pours on us daily? The point two, how God provides. So God, how does God react, right, 
to Israel, a people who, am, who he has redeemed, but treats him with so much disrespect. At a glance at our passage today, right, we see that even after how Israel complained to God, he still met their needs. But if we read closely, there was a greater purpose to his giving. God didn't provide for Israel so that Israel would finally love him. He wasn't trying to buy Israel's love. God isn't insecure about how we feel about him. Neither did God provide for Israel because he was just sick of their complaining. But God provided because he wanted his people to know his character so that they would remember what he is doing for them. We see this because there are four things, at least, we can notice about God's giving. He gives symbolically, conditionally, generously, and hopefully. Let's look at them. So back to the first narrative. When God brought them to this Mara place, right? What happened? God threw a log into bitter water, and it became sweet. In the Bible, bitterness is used to represent the presence of a curse or a disease. So God brought them there as an illustration to the point that he makes in 15 verse 26, that he is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, your healer. Through this symbolic giving, God wants his people to know that he is the one who is able to turn this wilderness that is full of bitterness into a place that's sweet. He will comfort us. He can turn our curse into paradise. Right? Then notice also, secondly, how God told Israel to do this. He gave them conditions. Maybe you've heard that God loves unconditionally. But that might not be exactly accurate because God loves, well, God's love is unconditioned, but it is conditional. What I mean is, right, there is nothing that Israel did to deserve God giving them this gift. God did this purely out of his infinite grace and generosity. However, to enjoy these gifts, there are conditions. See, the real gift in this first story is not the fact that God satisfied their physical needs, but that God allowed Israel to know his character. That because he loved them, Israel can know God in a way that Egypt didn't know as their healer and not their enemy. But to do this, they must not act like Egypt, to oppose and challenge the Lord. They must listen to his voice and follow his leading, to trust in the Lord and lean not on your understanding. So in the second narrative, in chapter 16, we see this theme continuing, right? This time, God gave them specific instructions as to how to participate and to enjoy the provisions that he gives them. Notice that God didn't just provide food that didn't need to be cooked right next to their beds, right? God didn't just go jack some food to Israel. Israel had to daily, for six out of seven days, gather the manna and the quail, prepare it, then cook it. Why did he do it this way? Look at verse 6 and 7. At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. 
So here we can see, right? God wants them to be reminded daily that it was He who provides for them. That they have a way to not forget that they're no longer slaves. That they don't work just because they're forced or to survive, but Israel gets to participate in God's goodness. That every morning and evening they can behold the glory of God, who is not trying to withhold any blessing from them. Israel thought, oh, we're going to miss out on meat and bread than Egypt. God's like, I got you. What do you lack, my son? Trust in the Lord, who in his infinite riches can give more abundantly than we can ever ask or think. See, God knows that our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. So we need to daily submit ourselves to his word and obey him. So this is why daily Bible reading and prayer is crucial to the Christian life. It is how we can silence the noise and the lies that the wilderness that we live in tries to trick us with. It's how we put our lives back into perspective, right? That on the seventh day, Israel was also supposed to, be, to rest in their tents. And this was the first institution of the commandment, the Sabbath. If you've been Christians for a while, you probably know that the Sabbath is the fourth out of ten commandments. Now, there's a lot we can say about this, and there's a lot of debate surrounding how we need to apply this command as Christians. But I'm not going to get into that. But what we can say for sure is that this is not optional, and this is not just about showing up to church on Sunday. A commentator I think profoundly puts it, that at the heart of the Sabbath commandment is that God is the Lord of your work and your time. And you're acknowledging that. That we need to pattern our work and our time after how God works and how God commands us to organize our time. Not that we get six days, God gets one. But the idea is that we need to adjust to God to what he wants us to do, to how he wants us to work, instead of fitting God into our schedules and lives. Why? Because God is the one who really is the provision. He is the source that will meet our needs, not our work. But this is hard for us, right? Because we live in a world of meritocracy, where it seems like we don't get anything if we don't work for it. But that is not the Christian worldview. Not that we should be lazy or passive about our work, but the point is, the most important thing about our work is not how many digits there are in our bank accounts. It's not how much prestige we can get or even how, much, how many people we can help. But the point and the most important thing about our work is that our work is itself an act of obedience and trust in the Lord who generously provides. A professor of mine in Westminster, he says that the measure of a good ministry is not in numbers, nickels, and noise, but in faithfulness. I think that applies to the Christian life too, not just the ministry. Right? Not in numbers, nickels, and noise, but in faithfulness. How have we been measuring our lives? How do we know?
if we've been doing the right thing. Finally, at the end of the first and second narrative, we can see that through God's provisions, God reminded them of where he is taking them. To remind them of the hope they're supposed to hold on to. So in the last verse of chapter 15, we see that God takes them to this oasis-like place called Elim, right? And there were 12 springs of water and 70 palms. How many tribes are in Israel? 12. And in Hebrew, the kind of palms that are talked about here are not the decorative ones that we see on the street, but they're like kurma, you know, like date palms that people can eat, right? So God is showing them, showing Israel. He's taking them to a place like this. A promised land where they will be satisfied and have no lack. And in chapter 16, what does it say the manna tastes like? Honey. What is the land of Canaan, the promised land? What is it called? The land of milk and honey. At the end of chapter 16, what are they supposed to do with the manna? Put it in a jar so that they're always reminded of God's generous providence for them. It's clear, right? That the point is that God didn't want them to lose sight of their destination. That this wilderness is temporary and it is not their home. God had prepared a land for them. Can't we say that too? That Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven? So we too need to see that the blessings that God gives us not only as gifts for the present, but as a foretaste of the glory to come. So how? How does Christians in the 21st century, how can we do this? How do we trust in the Lord and not get confused by the wilderness? So in the New Testament, there are two main passages that talk about what God did for Israel in our passage. The first is John 6, where Jesus compares himself to the manna that God gave from heaven. That Jesus is the true bread from heaven who gives life to the world. Jesus says here, that the Israelites who ate the manna still died in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness. The Bible says, besides Joshua and Caleb, nobody who was born in Egypt made it into the promised land. They all died there because of the grumbling. But whoever eats of Jesus' flesh and drinks his blood will live forever. That it is the will of the Father that Jesus loses none who has been given to him. Christ is the better manna. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul mentions the rock here that's in Exodus 17. This is an interesting rock. He says here that the rock, Paul does, followed them. So this was not some random rock that they found in the desert. It is accepted in Jewish tradition and confirmed here in 1 Corinthians by Paul that the rock was like a mobile well that followed them. Right? So it wasn't a one-off, but like manna, it was a way that God provided for them in the wilderness where there was no water. And Paul says here that the rock also pointed to Christ. Now what did God tell Moses to do in chapter 17 with the rock? To strike it? You see, Israel deserves to die in the wilderness for their grumbling and mistrust. Check out Exodus 33 and Numbers 20. Right? God was about to do just that. Likewise, the sins that we committed also made us worthy of death. But instead, God poured out his anger on the rock. 
so that it may flow water out of it and gives life to the people. So Christ is the rock because he took God's anger and allowed himself to be struck and he, so he can be the stream of living water and whoever drinks of him will never thirst. Christ was able to take the Roman symbol of oppression and death and turn it into our symbol of salvation. Christ was able to fulfill the conditions that we couldn't. We deserve to have diseases on us like Egypt. But Christ took the curse for us. And now Christ provides for us. He pours out generously the Holy Spirit that even now in this wilderness temptation, we can receive joy instead of grumbling. And because Christ has been raised and is now seated in the hand of the Father, He pleads for us and for our needs. And He's preparing for us, preparing a place for us so that we can see Him face to face. We have been given the better rock and the better man. So let's not let our circumstances make us paranoid or tempt us to satisfy our needs, even if it means disobedience and disrespect. It will only make it harder for us. Isaiah 26 verse 3 promises that the Lord will keep in perfect peace those whose mind are stayed on Him because they trust Him. What does the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism say? Christian, what is your only comfort in life? That you are not your own, but belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so humbled, Lord, that you provide for us every day that you renew our mercies every day, even though our hearts still wander from you. Convict us, O Lord, let us never lose sight of that and allow us to see your grace every day that we can always be grateful to you, that we can always be reminded of the heavenly home that you are taking us to, where we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.